Hi everyone, welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know. Not to know what you believe, why you believe it, or even to know what is being talked about on this podcast or in other theology circles. There are times where we think that we do not have as strong of a faith if we don't understand what's being talked about by pastors or by theologians. That's just not the case. It's okay not to know what they're talking about. Half the time, I don't know what they're talking about. What matters is that you are on this journey with others like you who are dedicated not to know, or at least not to define themselves according to what they know, and to just rest in the faith that's been given them. My name is Nathan Whitaker, and today I'm on my own because Ryan is taking a vacation. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about something that matters a great deal to me today. I actually shared part of this in in my story and episode a while ago. You can look that up about how philosophy started to make an impact on me. And I say that word very carefully because a lot of people tune out the second they hear the word philosophy. But my goal today is not to do philosophy, but to explain what postmodernism is. You saw the title of our podcast for today. It's Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? And quite frankly, uh, many of the traditions that we grew up in, those of us who are listening, are afraid of postmodernism. And I'm convinced that's because we just do not understand it. We throw everything onto postmodernism, thinking that it is the boogeyman for all of what we are worried about, when in fact, most people who study postmodern literature will say, well, you're actually worried about modernism? That's what this is. So postmodern, strictly speaking, is a critique, or at least a reflection upon modernism. And that simple sentence will alleviate six out of the ten concerns that most people have. This is not an agenda. It's not a way to destroy anything. It is simply reacting to the Enlightenment. So what I want to do first is define the Enlightenment a little bit just so we're all on the same page of what it is. And then we're going to look at three major concepts of postmodernism. And then, finally, we're going to answer three critiques of postmodernism. And the whole goal of this is just to get you acclimated to this, to help you see it's not very scary or too complex. It is a little weird, but it's not too complex. You can, you can do this. I know you can. I know you listening, whoever you are, can get your head around what we're talking about today. So before I get into the Enlightenment description, let me very briefly say I am just giving my narrative of postmodernism. This is meant to help give you a handle on postmodernism so that way you can uh, take it from there. Do not think that I am the authority here. I'm just trying to provide a gateway into understanding postmodernism better. So the Enlightenment is a major change in the course of history, and it's a change that comes about because of the tremendous intellectual and scientific progress of the age, but also because of the expectation of the age that philosophy, in the broad sense of the term, which includes natural and social sciences and more, would dramatically improve human life. So the Enlightenment is a progressive idea. Modernism is progressive. In other words, not in the 
not in the political sense, but in the idea that things are progressing. And that is because of the primary origin of the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries. The rise of new science progressively undermines not only the ancient geocentric conception of the cosmos, but also the set of presuppositions that had served to constrain and guide philosophical or general inquiry in the earlier times. So because of this progress in the 16th and 17th centuries, which, by the way, is right about the time of the Reformation, the Enlightenment and the Reformation do go hand in hand, because of these progresses that are happening and making life so much better, there's this conflict that happens between the ancient world and the Enlightenment world. So it continues this description on Stanford Encyclopedia, the dramatic success of the new science in explaining the natural world promoted philosophy from a handmaiden of theology, constrained by its purposes and methods, to an independent force with the power and authority to challenge the old construct, the new, in both realms of theory and practice on the basis of its own principles. In other words, philosophy in the ancient world was meant to explain things with stuff like science and theology and what we might call sociology and so on and so forth. And what ended up happening in the Enlightenment is that philosophy or philosophical concepts became the way in which we understood the world. We didn't understand them in hand, as a handmaiden to other things, but on their own principles. And the conclusion of this little piece here is, taking, taking as the core of the Enlightenment the aspiration for intellectual progress and the belief in the power of such progress to improve human society and individual lives, the Enlightenment, especially of the 18th century and beyond, is something that uh, they look into. So here's the core of the Enlightenment, is that not only is the scientific progress uh, important for the development of life, but the intellectual understanding that comes from that progress bled into philosophy and made it the king or queen among the disciplines. And therefore, people understood things philosophically, or the word that we use now a lot more is logically, with reason. Another way to think of the Enlightenment is the period of time where reason becomes sovereign. There's the sovereignty of reason, of logic, of the mind. And modernism captures this, that everything can be understood by logic. You see this a lot, and I'm not saying this to disparage it, but I'm actually quite interested in uh, atheist arguments, but you see uh, uh, very hyper-modernism in atheism, or at least certain expressions of atheism, uh, specifically new atheism with uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawson, and all those. They privilege logic and reason and you just have to listen to them for a while because they'll just, they'll privilege their brain. That's how they do it. So that was not as brief as I wanted, but 
the Enlightenment is a period of time that we are still living in, and we are living in post-Enlightenment time more and more, but the Enlightenment is a period of time and history where we privilege the brain, logic, reason, because we believe at our core that intellectual progress is possible, that we will eventually know as much as we need to know. So, Postmodernism is a critique and a reaction to enlightenment. And there are three ways that we can see this happen. Three ways in which there is a critique. And I'm going to go through those three ways. Some of these will be familiar because you've heard Ryan and I talk for a while. But I hope what will happen is this will give you some context into why these are such a big deal. So the first actually was coined by Jean-Francois Lyotard. Um, now, a lot of these guys are French when they come to postmodern. But he wrote a book called The Postmodern Condition. And he was trying to describe what he was seeing. He wasn't doing a theoretical paper. He was describing what he was seeing in academia and in the world. And he would call this eventually the postmodern condition. And Leotard came to this very simple phrase to explain the postmodern condition, condition, and he said that, that those that are within this postmodern condition have an incredulity towards metanarratives. In other words, they find it hard to believe and hold on to metanarratives. So it's really important for us to understand metanarratives. And right off the bat, we get into problems because... Many Christians define things as metanarratives that are not metanarratives. So metanarrative is something that requires legitimation outside of its own story. It requires something outside of the narrative to make it true, to make it valuable, to make it this, that, or the other. So the Enlightenment, which we've already discussed, is one of these metanarratives. It is the belief that rational thought allied to scientific reasoning, capital R reason, that reason is a thing outside of the Enlightenment, that when we hold on to capital R reason as a thing that we believe in and that we adhere to, it inevitably leads towards progress, either moral, social, ethical, scientific, whatever it might be. So, rational thought, reason, is the thing that's outside of the story of the Enlightenment that legitimates the Enlightenment. In other words, it wouldn't be true without reason or rational thought. Metanarratives are always those things that are outside, and usually they are political, scientific, um, philosophical, of course, narratives. What is not a metanarrative are religious texts. Now, religions can be turned into metanarratives. Salvation history would be a metanarrative within the Christian tradition. But the scripture itself is not a metanarrative. It's just a narrative. That's all it is. It's a story about God working in and through his people throughout all time. There's no meta narrative there because it's not seeking to legitimize itself or legitimate itself outside of its own text, right? And, and you can see this with the modern arguments against Christianity. 
modern being a technical term, philosophical. And you get this from atheists. And again, I'm not beating up on atheists. They have a lot to teach us. And they're wonderful people, too. Many of uh, my best friends throughout life have been atheists. But the problem with modernism in atheistic thought is that they seek to have something outside of the text impose itself onto the Bible to make it true. So we have to see, for instance, naturalism in the text, the way that we've seen things. So, for example, if Genesis 1 and 2 don't accurately describe how we have come to theorize that the beginning of time has come about, you know, specifically Big Bang or evolution or what have you, then it has to be wrong, right? And and many Christians have responded in a meta-narrative way and said, wait a second, no, we have room for that in our tradition, and we'll say that evolution is a real thing and that it is scriptural. And so what we end up doing is we make that part of our narrative, but it is a meta-narrative. I hope I'm making sense. Meta-narratives are about legitimating a way of thinking and doing things. Scripture is not a meta-narrative because it's just a story. It's a story that makes an impression on somebody that therefore you then have to make a choice, is how some traditions say it, or open up to the reality of the Holy Spirit, as other traditions would say it, but it, it insists upon you, and then you have a reaction to that. It doesn't demand that you believe it to be true because it follows the categories of reason or logic or truth, which is something, as I was trying to say, atheists try to impose upon the scripture, and then Christians have done the same thing. So meta narratives are these things that we are told are true, but depend on things outside of themselves to make them true. And usually, here's the end of this little piece, usually when I say big T truth or big R reason or big L logic, that means like these metaphysical qualities. Like I can be logical and I talk to myself or talk about myself as being logical. But I don't believe in Big L logic, which is that there is an inherent logic to everything going on all the time. I believe in the truth, but I don't believe in Big T truth, that the truth is true no matter what. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Right? These big big L or big letters words, <laughs> Big L logic or Big T truth, big letters words are ways in which we legitimate stories outside of themselves. Okay, so that's just kind of some of the language that we got to get into. Leotard was huge for this and saying, hey, why don't we pay attention to the stories and pay attention to what's being told within those stories instead of trying to legitimate them outside of themselves. Something we as Christians should be fully on board with. (laughs) We should be on board with this like nobody's business. We want to believe because we believe, not because it's true, because then we have to defend truth instead of the story. You see where this gets? It gets us into weird places. We have to defend logic. We have to defend that we are logical in the big L logic way instead of defending the story and just talking about the story. Where I will point to somebody and say, I won't point at anybody. (laughs) When somebody points at me and says, why do you believe what you believe? I say, 
Well, because I believe it. The story kind of tells me that that's what's going on. Oh, do you believe it's true? Yeah, I believe it's true. How do you know? Well, I don't know. Because then I have to go to Big T Truth to describe that. All right, so that's what meta narratives are. Uh, we can continue on with that thread. I just want to give you a taste of it, and I hope it's clear enough so you can see what's going on here. Meta narratives are not something Christians should be dedicated to defending. We do not believe in a meta narrative. We believe in a narrative, and that narrative holds on to us about how God loves us, and He showed that love through Jesus Christ. And we get to participate in that love now and forever. And that is what we cling to. We don't care as much, and we shouldn't care really at all, of defending it as true because uh, we want to hold on to whatever truth means in the big T way. All right, so I will have spent more time on meta narratives than these other two because we've talked about these other two quite a bit on the podcast that it's really important for us to get. The second one comes from... Uh, Foucault, Michael, Michel, Michel Foucault, uh, and again, French, right? And he is somebody who highlights the nature of power. The thing about modernism and modern thought is it doesn't give much consideration to how power is used um, outside of obvious ways of power. Now, I'm like very, somebody who studies modern philosophy would get upset with me right away. Uh, but the critique of postmodern thought is that power is not considered within the daily interactions, within the interactions between belief systems, and how power is within every structure of reality. And this is important because a modern way of thinking about things is to say that it's true without really thinking about what does it mean to claim truth as a means of power. And we see this a lot in the church, a lot. We see truth as being the thing that gives us power. And pastors and leaders and so forth, they will use power in the name of truth to get what they want. This is the big critique that we come upon time and time again. It's very nuanced at times, but it's pretty blunt in general. There is the connection between truth or right reasoning or right thought or whatever it is, morality, certainly. And what postmodern study does is helps us be sensitive to those power dynamics, helps us understand how our situatedness in this world, the way that we find ourselves when we're born and as we develop, we come to understand what that means is that there are certain power dynamics at play. And sometimes we may be at the top of the power. You know, you've got white cisgendered men. They're certainly going to be at the top of the power right now. Um, or at the bottom, if you are a transgendered person in the church, that is going to be very low power. Postmodern study helps us rectify with that. Uh, first acknowledge it, but also rectify it. And then you know, there are ethical responses that we have, too. That's something that I study. Uh, what's the ethical response to when you recognize your power? Well, <laughs> Jesus kind of tells us, right, um, to be powerless, to, to side with the weak and the oppressed instead of with those who are powerful. And that can be tricky because sometimes those who are powerful will feel as if they're oppressed. And, you know, we have that, right? <laughs> what happens when you lose, lose privilege in America? Well, it feels like oppression because you're losing privilege. Well, 
that's losing power. That's not <laughs> being oppressed. And so we need to help people with that. Foucault, Michel Foucault is another postmodern study guy that uh, is kind of foundation for a lot of stuff. So we've talked about meta-narratives with Leotard and how meta-narratives require legitimation outside of themselves. We talked about power and how power is in the structures uh, of life and a sensitivity and awareness to those is really important. And then finally, there is uh, my, fra- my favorite, Jacques Derrida. Derrida talks about deconstruction. Deconstruction, I will always say this until the end of my life, Deconstruction is not destruction. It is not destroying things. A good image for this comes from my doctoral advisor. And he told me, he said, you know, don't be that kid that knocks over the other kid's blocks. That's what deconstruction as destruction can do. It is saying that you are better, that you know the right argument and you are going to destroy somebody. And they're really, sometimes their frame of mind and their hold on reality, not big R reality, but reality. And you want to avoid that because that's not what deconstruction is about. That is just what we call being an asshole. And I, every postmodern studies person goes through this. You have a period where you're just going to be an asshole because, and, uh, you know, eventually you'll hopefully learn not to do that because, It's not very charitable. It's not very kind to people as they try to figure out this life. But deconstruction, if it's not destruction, what is it? Well, deconstruction is more akin to another fantastic image that I'm sure I've shared, but it's scraping off the barnacles of the ship. Or if you want to think of it like, you know, if you're creating a sculpture, a very large sculpture, you've got to build scaffolding all around it. And that scaffolding can get in the way of your sculpture, right? Can get in the way of what you're doing so people can't see it. Just like barnacles, they can weigh down a ship. And in fact, they do cost millions of dollars to remove them because the more barnacles on the ship, of uh, specifically the Navy, um, the more they have to spend in gas. And it actually far outweighs the cost to remove barnacles than it is to fill up the ships and let them set C with those barnacles. And so the idea here is deconstruction is kind of a shedding. It is a removing of things that are damaging. That's important. They're damaging to the story, to the idea, to the way of life that you have before you. So for Christians, we deconstruct theology that is around scripture Because sometimes our theologies hurt other people and hurt the story itself. And I don't have to talk much about this, right? We're living in a world where that's happening all the time. The evangelical meta-narrative that they have crafted around Trump and around the recent uh, cultural movements about strength and power and so on and so forth, they just, they erase almost. They certainly eclipse and hide very well what Jesus talks about when he talks about power. Jesus always goes to the war, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. The Good Samaritan scandalized people because he's saying, you got to pay attention to those who are hurting, those who are lesser. And that's not how this world works. And yet evangelicals in today's world have built this scaffolding around Christianity 
that has Christian language but resembles nothing of what uh, the scriptures tell us. And so what deconstruction does is it starts to pick away at that scaffolding. It starts to scrape away those barnacles and says, hey, uh, this is actually not a really good thing for you to believe in, and here's why. And sometimes it's because it's not ethical. Sometimes it's because it's not uh, consistent with the text, if you will, for Christianity, and so on and so forth. But postmodern deconstruction is not about destroying things. It is about reevaluating them with the possibility of shedding them or scraping them off because they are damaging. And most often what this turns into is just a reimagining. And this is where postmodernism can sound kind of weird because it's looking for a third way. It's not trying to provide a corrective. It's trying to find a third way, recognizing that the corrective could be just turned into another meta-narrative. So how do we find a third way? And it gets really confusing really quick, especially if you read this stuff, because they're trying to avoid uh, the ways in which we've always talked about things and find a third way away from everything that has barnacled up or put scaffolding around our ideas, our concepts, and our humanity. So, boy, that was really quick. Those are three things that really characterize postmodernism. These are things that characterize postmodernism as a response to modernism, to modernity, to the Enlightenment. So instead of pursuing meta-narratives where big L logic, big R reason, big T truth comes out on top, postmodern studies tries to focus on the stories as themselves instead of as pointing to truth. So when evangelism comes in, for example, I'm not looking to convince you that this thing is true. I'm trying to show you how compelling it is and how you have to pay attention to what Jesus says. And then I can help you of how you can respond to that. But my goal is not to try to tell you it's true. My goal is to show you how compelling it is and how it's changed lives and how uh, it really seems to be something worth paying attention to. And that's, I think, how the first disciples did things. So there's meta-narratives. Power is within every structure. Modernism, of course, talked about power. There's power in modernity, of course. But what postmodern studies does, especially through Foucault, is to say that power is within every single interaction within the day. And the more we're sensitive and aware to that, we can make adjustments and we can work to do things better for ourselves and for our others. And then finally, deconstruction is to remove or to uh, shed those things that are damaging to us. It is not to destroy anybody's belief. Unfortunately, so many people use deconstruction this way. I just, it makes me so stupidly angry. Like it's like this stupid, uh, <laughs> academic anger that I get. Would you please stop fucking using deconstruction as de as destruction? If you just want to destroy people's beliefs, just say it. <laughs> deconstruction is not about that. It is about questioning those beliefs that we've hold, held on to and wondering whether or not they fall into power or meta-narrative or other paradigms that we've been inherited from the Enlightenment, and then decide what we want to do with that. So with those three things out of the way, I want to tackle finally three questions, three challenges 
the three most common things I hear whenever somebody hears that I'm in postmodern studies. I try not to use that. I use continental philosophy because, boy, if you want to tune people out, <laughs> which I just did with many of you, um, that's a good way to say I study continental philosophy. If I want to do it even more cringy, I could say post-enlightenment continental philosophy. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we want to talk about those three things. Um, they are relativism, post-fact, and post-modernity. So I'm going to talk with uh, post-modernity first. Post-modernity and post-modernism are two kind of different things, but they are, you know, on the same kind of tracks, moving the same direction. Uh, and it's simply this: postmodernism is the structured, philosophical and logical—not big L logic, but logical—discussion of ideas. So it is the framework on which we can understand our culture, our lives, our thoughts. Postmodernism is always formal, so it's always like in books. It's always theory usually i mean there's there'll be things that aren't theory um but always they flow from theory postmodernity is the cultural movement so we are in a postmodern culture you've heard that i'm sure before and postmodern modernity is a bit sloppy it, i like to think of it as the figuring out of postmodernism in real time without the structure Right? So the structure is not what leads the way here. Postmodernity is what leads the way. Uh, people have been postmodern all the way back, even before Leotard, when he wrote the postmodern condition to try to describe postmodernism uh, or postmodernity, to use that specific word. Uh, and we've been living in postmodern times since then. Um, we've been living in postmodernity for my entire lifetime. And uh, probably most people who are alive today have experienced modernity for the majority of their life. And this gets really sloppy really quick. And that's where the following two things that we're going to talk about, relativism and post-fact type stuff, really comes to play. Because it's not post-modernism that espouses those things, but it's as the culture tries to figure out this new mood that we're in, post-modernity, it will do kind of crazy things because uh, that's just how culture works. And I'm not going to get too deep because, you know, we need to talk about if we wanted to get deep of how philosophy and life mirror each other, what's that actually look like? I'm just going to assume that um, we don't need to talk about that for you to understand that Postmodernity is the way that the culture moves, whereas postmodernism is the structure and the theoretical framework in which we understand how the culture is moving. So there are interesting little tidbits here. First, by and large, postmodernism is a cultural thing, and that's why I got into it, because it's a cultural understanding of uh, the world. Uh, Enlightenment philosophy would be more systematic way of thinking about things. So if you were, were to apply these to fields of study and theology, of course, the Enlightenment is a systematic theology. That's why Ryan and I pick on it, because it's thoroughly modern and drives us crazy sometimes. Well, me more so than him. But postmodern philosophy is, it does have those elements to it, but it's more interested in how people are living and how people are grappling with this world as it develops, as it moves, not in progress, but in time, space and time. 
So there's postmodernity, postmodernism. If you haven't tuned out, let's do the last two. Isn't postmodernism just relativism? Well, I got to get into a little technical thing here so that we can understand this better. Relativism, and the way that most people think about it, is that anything goes. So everything is true, uh, even counter stuff. And God, I get so tired of this with people. It's like uh, the favorite thing Christians like to say. Well, are you saying two plus two equals five? No, we're not saying two plus two equals five. It doesn't mean that everything is true. In fact, here's my little nerdy thing. You can tune out for 30 seconds or, you know, I usually talk longer, so maybe five minutes. <laughs> um, in fact, the trying locate truth, that is a modern endeavor. Postmodern people don't really focus on that. So we're not trying to tell you where truth is at all. <laughs> it's really quite silly. When, when relativism, comes, relativism comes up is we just say that, hey, as creatures... You can't know things that you think you can know. You are within a system of structures more complex than any of us really realize, and we can't get outside of them. How can you dare to know truth? I think of Job like this, right? Were you there when I formed the foundation of the world? How could you possibly know the things that you're espousing to know? Big T truth, big R reality. Oh, that's a big one. Like people really claiming that they know the foundation of reality, like what reality really is. Honestly, do you? You, the 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 uh, middle-aged, no offense to any of these categories, the middle-aged white man in the middle of Indiana, you know what reality is when, <laughs> you know, there's been billions of people before you and billions probably after you and you're the one that knows what reality is. It's just absolutely ridiculous so relativism isn't is just the reaction that most people have when they're so entrenched in modernism that they think that they have a handle on big t truth on reality and they don't recognize that well you're just actually in systems upon systems and in fact as christians you're not asked to have a hold on big t truth you're asked to have a hold on the truth which is jesus christ and let me just, God, I got to do that. It just came up. I didn't even mean to do this, but the truth does not mean enlightenment truth. Jesus is not saying the truth in that way. He's saying the truth as the one who comes through the story of scripture. He's not saying, hey, I'm the big T truth. You need to defend truth because in so defining truth, you define or defend me. And so defending truth, you defend me. The closest scripture gets to that is a place you don't want to hang your hat. And it's um, where Jesus is related to wisdom. And that is such poetry. If you want to hang your hat on that as being logical, then, you know, I can't really help you with that. Anyway, relativism. No, we don't believe that everything is true. That's insane. Uh, we don't believe two plus two is five. That's insane. We're going to get to that in just a second. What we dedicate ourselves to is being humble in what we do and do not know. We are going to assume that we do not know a whole lot more <laughs> than many assume they do know. And that's where the rub comes in. So, no, not everything's true, but how do you define true? And this leads to the last one, post-fact. 
right? We've had this era, uh, alternative fact era, and as much as I would really love to just say that it was one stupid administration that did this, this is one of the problems of postmodernity, the cultural move. It gets messy. And one of the ways that it's expressed itself, especially in the last four years, is through this post-fact reality that people think that, hey, you can ignore the facts um, because there are no such thing as facts. By the way, hobby horse, just a little thing that bugs me to no end. The very people who get sep- upset about relativism are those that espouse it. <laughs> like classical evangelical Christians who have supported this president the past president so much with his alternative facts. They're the ones who love relativism. And I hate being that guy, but come on, if you're going to be so upset about relativism, how about you start with yourself? (laughs) Anyway, so post-fact, right? We live in this post-fact reality, or at least what's being pushed as a a reality. I want to introduce a final thinker. His name is Ludwig Wittgenstein, and he's actually the guy that started me on this path. And he has this concept called language games. I don't need to get into it, but basically facts are things that are located in different ways of speaking, these language games. So a political fact is different than a social fact, is different than a science fact, is different than a, take your pick, language fact. There are facts. But these facts do not get elevated to big R reality, big T truth. They are just, they are part of the system. So my classic example that I got really annoyed at, and I always do, does two plus two equal five? No, because in the language game or in the reality of math, that's impossible. Well, you know, you get into quantum stuff and then maybe it can, I don't know. Quantum's probably not even the right word. When you get into hyper-theoretical I know somebody has done that to just be (laughs) a poke of the bear. But generally, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know how I know that is because our math tells us, our mathematics, they tell us that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And it actually serves to be really handy for us to understand some of the nature of our world because math is, is a structure within our understanding of the world. Does that mean that 2 plus 2 is 4 objectively speaking? No, because how can you make that claim? You don't know. You're a creature. You can't know if it's objectively in the world. You can do observation to to see that 2 plus 2 kind of matches what's going on, but it's just a handle within our world to understand things. It is an enlightenment, a logical way of thinking about things. And once it becomes useless, we're not going to use it anymore. Now, I have a hard time believing 2 plus 2 or whatever math thing you want to think about will become useless. But it's a fact. It's a fact. It's a fact, and I'm doing this just because it's such a good example. It's a fact that the inauguration of President Trump was not the most populated of our history. Because we have historical documents that have these things called numbers that tell us how many people were there. And when we compare, we have this thing called greater than or equal to and less than. And we know that Trump had less than all the other. Well, not all the others, but you know what I mean, right? So we've got these structures that help us understand what's going on. And those are facts. We don't need to elevate them to objective truth. 
because we're not pursuing that game anymore. Instead, we're just living in the reality that things are true because they're true, not because they're objectively true, but because they're helpful and they work within the system. A lot of the complexity of life come when those lines get blurred, right, between science and politics and so on and so forth. I don't want to get into that too much because it gets complicated and I'll be talking to you for much longer. But within the systems, within the language games, within the paradigms that we have been given, there are facts, plain and simple. Okay, so we've talked about a few things there. We've talked about relativism, about postmodernity, and about post-facts, and are facts a real thing? All right, so those are the three common arguments or common, (laughs) usually they think they're like dismantling thoughts, like, oh, I never thought about it. It could be relativism. Well, no, see, we talk about this stuff all the time in postmodern studies. Philosophers deal with these things all the time. As an educator, I know that's kind of the life that I have when it comes to postmodern studies to help people see that their conception of postmodernism is actually really not helpful. Um, You're fighting battles. Here, listen to me, uh, conservative Christians. If you listen, I doubt you do, but whatever. You're fighting battles you don't need to be fighting. Like, postmodernism is not an enemy. It really is not. Does that mean you have to you know, get on board the postmodern train? Of course not. I'm not on board the postmodern train. I don't even think there is one. Um, but you don't need to fight it. It's it's not really worth fighting all that much. They're, they're actually upset at their own game. They're upset at modernism. Modernism is the problem, folks. Uh, like if I could be an evangelist outside of uh, helping you see the richness of theology and the glory of our, our narrative, not meta-narrative, it'd be to say, hey, come on over here and let's talk postmodern stuff because it's actually really beautiful. You get free from all the bullshit that we talk about all the time, and then you have actually good and fun and neat conversations with people that just are exciting intellectually for me personally, but also freeing because, hey, you mean I don't have to defend big T truth to defend Jesus? Hey, you mean I don't have to defend Jesus at all? Uh, No, you don't. (laughs) Jesus does a pretty good job of that on his own. In fact, you defending Jesus is getting in the way of Jesus speaking for himself. There, I said it. It's just as true as that. He becomes a lot less compelling the more you cram him into big T truth. The more you let him speak, The more you let scriptures do what it's going to do, the scriptures do what they're going to do, the more compelling it gets. This is where my passion is. It's one of the biggest things that have hindered the church, hindered Christians for so long. We have dedicated ourselves to this enlightenment thinking, this modernism, and it is killing us especially as we engage the postmodern condition, the postmodernity in our lives. And so I'm going to make a bold claim as my final little piece here. If you have felt uneasy in the church as a result of your everyday life, postmodernism explains why. It really, truly does. You have felt unease because the church is trying to sell you a different culture. The culture of post, I'm sorry, the culture of modernity. And 
you recognize at your core, you've experienced, it's something you can't maybe put words to, but you've experienced life much differently. And I can tell you, I have friends, I have um, relatives, I have people that I know that just, they're not interested in the church because the church is telling them things they know aren't true. Not big T true, but true to their experience. And that's why I'm so passionate about postmodern philosophy. <laughs> and that's why, although I understand why people roll their heads and uh, roll their heads, <laughs> maybe they do, roll their eyes whenever I talk philosophy. So I am okay with it because it is such an important thing for us to at least get a little through to, um, to uncover the richness and the gracious uh, reality of God. So I hope that was interesting. Um, I'm recording this right now and it's at 56 minutes. I doubt it'll be that long because there's lots of pauses and so forth. I hope that it felt like it wasn't, you know, a lecture. My goal was just to give you some ideas, some handles to handle this postmodern condition. We're all in. And hey, if you want to talk more, if you want me to do a little bit more, um, let me know. I probably will anyway, just because we have some time here where we're going to have to do episodes on our own in the future. But I am really excited to know um, what what's something that you're thinking about when it comes to postmodernism. Are these concepts new to you? Are they things that outside of this podcast you've never heard of? Has this been helpful? Has it been clarifying? Let me know. Send, send us an email at frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com. I haven't been so good at, at keeping up Facebook. One of my goals in this summer is to do better at that. Uh, you can send us a message there, of course, at Frontier Faith Podcast, and I'd love to hear that. Otherwise, I am just excited to share this with you today, to share a little bit about postmodernism. Let me finish by, uh, this is, even though it is philosophy, it is not very dense philosophy. And boy, postmodern philosophy can get very dense very fast. But this series is phenomenal. And I'm going to recommend two books, one that I really use today, and then another that is really helpful beyond that. And I might make a whole another episode out of that one. But the series is called The Church and Postmodern Culture. It is by Baker Academic Press, uh, which comes out of Grand Rapids. Uh, what's the college up there? Wheaton College. James K.A. Smith is, I believe, the editor, um, the curator. Yeah, he's the series editor. James K.A. Smith is another great person to read. Um, he's actually really relatable, very easy to understand postmodern philosophy through him. I think he gets some things wrong, but who cares? Um, if you're just getting into it, it's good. So there's Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? I lied. There's actually three books I want to recommend to you. There's Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? There's Who's Afraid of Relativism? And Relativism talks about, uh, uh Richard Rorty, who's another guy that I really fell in love with as I was beginning this stuff. Um, and then finally, uh, the boss himself, what would Jesus deconstruct by John Caputo? John Caputo is phenomenal, but he requires a little bit more understanding in his major works. This is still very readable. This series is meant to be readable for people. And if you want to know what deconstruction really looks like, read this book. It is a cherished book of mine. I cannot help but recommend it whenever I talk about postmodern studies. 
Well, thank you for listening during this time. Uh, it has been a pleasure. It'll be weird to have to edit this without uh, Ryan's signature uh, outro, uh, but I will say the same thing that he does. Uh, it will be okay. It'll be okay because it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know what you believe or why you believe it. And now you have a philosophy to help you understand a little bit more why that's okay. 